0: As has already been mentioned, it's truly a blessing that we each have this evening to come together in the name of the God of heaven, and to do so without fear of being bothered, if you will, by authorities or others, and to see that so many have come together this evening, both visitors and a regular membership, for that we're so thankful and grateful. And some, in fact several, made comment that they were somewhat looking forward to the series of lessons that were beginning this evening, and at this point might I say a word of appreciation to our elders who have been so supportive of the pursuit of this particular series. And in fact, we might even go so far as to say that the various lessons are, of course, taped. So if there would be anyone that would desire a tape, for instance, just let one of the elders know that. And I believe that could be certainly well accommodated. The book of Revelation. To make remark about the very name itself is a rather significant matter, isn't it? For among the 66 books of the Bible, this one seems to stand in many ways on its own from a number of perspectives. And as we move through this series of lessons, we will in fact discuss a number of ideas and things. And as the title of this lesson indicates, the first one will be an introductory type of lesson to set the stage for all of those in many ways which will follow. With that being said, I would encourage you to ponder with me some of the following remarks. We are well aware of the powerful thought of the importance of Bible study. In fact, this very segment and portion of our worship is devoted to that idea. Long ago, the psalmist exclaimed in Psalm 119 verse 89, "...forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven." To say that the word of God is settled in heaven is certainly to include the Old Testament, the New Testament as well, but that also means the book of Revelation. Revelation. The things contained in this last stanza of the Holy Bible are not man's opinions or his speculations or anything along that line. These, too, have been settled in heaven and are there for my benefit and for yours as well. Four verses later, in verse 93 of that same chapter, we so easily recognize the powerful fact about, again, "...Thy will never forget thy word." For, thy, for with thy precepts thou hast quickened me. The book of Revelation is also God's precepts. And hence a knowledge of those precepts contained in this last book of the Bible will aid you and me in standing quickened or fully alive before the God of heaven and able to appreciate more deeply and more fully the blessings of the Christian era. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 near the close of that book of poetry in the Old Testament, notice with me especially how that particular set of verses begins. Every word of God is pure. The American Standard Translation renders that every word of God is tried. To say every word of God is referenced also includes the book of Revelation. This book, you see, and we each understand that fact, is a powerful and real and significant portion of the word of God It thus shouldn't be ignored, it shouldn't be overlooked, it shouldn't be neglected. It's just as significant as the 65 books before it. And since it is in the New Testament, one might argue it has an added significance compared to some that might be present there in the Old Testament era. Our study of the book of Revelation is such that these thoughts alone provide sufficient reasoning to pursue the study. But wouldn't it not be an appropriate time to note that this book, perhaps far more than others before it, has been overlooked, it has been neglected, and sadly it's been misinterpreted and abused. Would it not be fair to say that certainly more than the 26 New Testament books before it, and certainly more than many of the 39 Old Testament books before it, this book is the centerpiece for misinterpretation in the mind of so many, and it has been so for centuries. In this opening lesson might we perhaps at least try to sort out in our mind some of the basic truths about this book and they will be a helpful guide to us as we, by way of this introduction, move into the other series of studies that follow it. With that being noted, consider with me how the book of Revelation fits into the New Testament itself. How the book of Revelation fits. You might begin with me by noting That this book is a primary book of victory. We must never forget that fact. Revelation is a book of triumph, a book of victory. The good guys win in the book of Revelation. Now, that alone should provide ample opportunity and reason for you and me to delve deeply into the book and to study it intently. Good triumphs. It's a book of victory. That thought alone will in fact often be referred to by us as we time and again will see God's panoramic victory, the triumph of Christianity as it is so plainly set before us in the book of Revelation. To say that it is a book of victory, let me ask you to perhaps embed in your mind with me at this point a key idea about the book. Quite often as we study the various books in the Bible... It is a useful idea to discern what is the key thought or the key word. That is a word that the author of that book, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, used on many occasions. For quite often, that key word will be a critical clue to the main idea of the whole book. And so it is with the book of Revelation. The key idea of the book is rolled up in the usage of the word overcome. It occurs 17 times in the Greek text overcome. If you will overcome Satan, sin, and self, you can come over and live with me in heaven. We will see that almost verbatim in Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21. A beautiful thought indeed, overcome. That's a word we should easily then put in our minds and remember as we think about the book of Revelation, overcome. Victory. Victory. We've already made note of the victory and the theme and the thought of that in this book. But as you see the victory that's there, notice how that's approached from an alternate perspective. The New Testament, as we well understand, consists of 27 books. How are they divided? What message or lesson do they as a grand scheme present? The first four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the gospel accounts. They testify without any doubt the reality of the Son of God, the Lord, the Messiah, has come. These are testimonies of his life, how he lived, the way in which he went about his daily activities, and even the recognition of the new covenant that he would be bringing into play with the characterization of his death. Thus, those four books are the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Christ, and furthermore, they thus detail in no uncertain terms the fact he had come. Notice, though, that all four of those gospel accounts end by noting his crucifixion, that though this one was perfect, sinless in every regard, yet wicked men nailed him to a tree for nothing that he had done violating the will of God. But all four of them also noticed that the grave couldn't hold him. That on that Lord's Day morning, the first day of the week, he came forth and burst forth the bands of death, if you will. And furthermore, that leads us to the following interesting idea. Once the Savior ascended back to heaven, as recorded in Luke 24 as well as Acts chapter 1, what book would naturally come next and what would you suspect that its theme would be? Well, clearly it would be. What about this movement known as Christianity? Once its founder and leader had ascended back to heaven, what would happen to the movement? And furthermore, how does one identify with that movement? That leads us to the book of Acts, for those are the key ideas in the book of Acts. First, the establishment of that that church in chapter 2, the growth of that movement as it exploded across the Roman Empire. But notice, how does one identify with that movement? The book of Acts presents time and again examples of how individuals became simple New Testament Christians. And thus, the book of Acts naturally follows the four gospel accounts that preceded it. But once one becomes a Christian, what then is next? Twenty-one epistles from Romans through Jude that set before us how to live day by day and moment by moment the Christian life. These epistles, thus, in a generic way, a general way, indicate how one lives for Christ. Thus, note with me at this point, the life of Christ in the gospel accounts, how to become a Christian for you and me in the book of Acts, how to live the Christian life in the 21 epistles that follow, that just leaves one book, and that's the book of Revelation. What then is the only thing that's left? The book of Revelation, the hope of Christianity. How does one die in Christ? What about the hope of a Christian? And that is the major thrust theme and idea of the book of Revelation. Notice with me the book of victory, a book of hope. The book of Revelation is a positive, powerful, and yet at the same time challenging book. It's worthy of our attention. It's worthy of our deepest consideration. And as already noted, beginning today, we will over the next several weeks consider a series of lessons attempting to unfold the matters contained in the book of Revelation. At this point, in light of what we've said so far this evening, perhaps it would be well to note, why is it then that those opening statements about the book were true? If Revelation is a book of victory, if Revelation is a book where the good guys win, if it is a book that sustains and discusses the triumph of Christianity, Why has it been abused? Why has it been so misinterpreted? Why has it been neglected or overlooked? May I submit that some five reasons would be worthy of our discussion, and as we look at these, they will give us a tremendous aid to a deeper understanding of the overall interpretation of the book of Revelation. Notice with me, if you would, the first reason that we might list. Without question, it seems to me, one of the first thoughts that would be worthy of our mention as to why the book has met the difficulties in interpretation that it has has to do with the type of literature that it is. Let's explain that a bit more fully. What do we mean by the type of literature that it is? You and I are familiar with reading various kinds of literature, perhaps a newspaper, perhaps a magazine or some other kind of article, maybe a history book, for example. We are rather accustomed to reading narrative orders that are chronological. When you and I come to the Holy Word of God, however, as we noted in a lesson a couple of months ago, it has various kinds of literature within it. The book of Psalms and Proverbs, for example, those are poetry books. They aren't narratives in chronological order. Or when we come to a book, for instance, like Galatians or Ephesians, that's not a narrative in chronological order, it's an epistle. And thus, we well come to realize that there are various kinds of literature contained in the Word of God. But when we come to the book of Revelation, it is not a narrative in chronological order. In fact, the Word itself tells us that. Let's see how that's true. The very first verse in the book of Revelation begins as follows. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. I just read that from the King James Version. If one, however, looked at the Greek text and how that appeared, the very first word in the book of Revelation is the word apocalypsis. You and I would say apocalyptic. The opening stanza, the opening word testifies to the fact this is apocalyptic literature. But we might each ask, well, what does that mean? That's a rather long and fancy term. It means, as I've indicated on that screen, apocalyptic literature presents truth, or should we say the principles of truth, but it does so utilizing symbols and signs. It is not a narrative in chronological order. And when you and I this appreciate this apocalyptic nature to that book, our minds maybe rushes to other books in the Bible that follow an apocalyptic kind of revelation. There are a few books in the Bible that have sections that are apocalyptic. Think with me about the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Almost all of Ezekiel is apocalyptic. Or what about the last six chapters of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament? That is apocalyptic as well. Do you recall the visions that God allowed Daniel to see? The he-goat and the other matters, the ram, for example? All of that was an apocalyptic section of the Old Testament. Or what about the New Testament section? Matthew chapter 24, in many respects, is apocalyptic. The point that we're seeking to make is that the signs and the various symbols that we see in this book are not, in general, to be taken in a literal fashion. That's not what they were intended to present. Rather, truth is presented in a generic or general fashion using symbols that have meaning behind them. In fact, did you notice as we read verse number 1, that the latter part of that verse again reads, "...and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John." That word signified... Notice that that word itself means to indicate or to lay beside of such that to reveal. No matter which way one sees it then from that opening verse, the usage of the word apocalypse, and that fancy word just means the unveiling or the revealing or the disclosing. Might we thus in a summary way say that the God of heaven through Jesus Christ disclosed or unveiled the final chapter of God's written revelation in this book. And he chose to do so in the usage of symbols and signs, and we shall encounter many of them through the book. I've listed just a few to whet our appetite at that point. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and following, we will read about a pale horse, and the one riding the horse is death. Now what literal sense does that make? Death riding a pale horse. However, there will be deep meaning behind that once we arrive at a study of chapter 6. Or what about the fact in chapter 13 when we read about this dramatic scene in which two beasts rise from the sea? One beast is called the first, the second beast is indeed called the second, but they each have various activities that they accomplish. Did that then mean that John literally saw two beasts rise from the sea? Well, of course not, not in a literal way, but those beasts represent real matters with which those of the first century had to deal. And their meaning will be very appropriate for you and me as well once we arrive at a discussion of them a bit later in our series. Or yet in chapter 20, when we read about there in verses 2 and following about how that John was able to witness and see a pit that had no bottom. In other words, a bottomless pit. Again, not something literal, but a figurative expression with a world of truth behind it. And we'll need to discuss that again as the proper time approaches. That's just a short listing of three various symbols that we will encounter. There are many others. But let us remember as we use and approach the symbols to appreciate the fact that there's meaning behind those symbols and that's the important thing for us to ascertain as nearly as we possibly can. Thus, the first reason we might list for the book of Revelation causing difficulty throughout the centuries, a failure to recognize the kind of literature that it is. It's apocalyptic in nature. But in the second place, another reason it's fair to mention as well would be this one. The book of Revelation's relation to the Old Testament. Let's in fact discuss that a bit more fully for just a moment. We are well aware that the New Testament often quotes or references the Old Testament. For instance, the book of Matthew is well known to quote many, many times verbatim various texts out of the Old Testament. However, we should not forget that Revelation does the same. By some count, there's over 500 references and allusions in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament. But what makes that a bit more difficult for us is that some of those Old Testament books that are referenced are not the most familiar to you and me. A moment ago, when we mentioned that the apocalyptic books of the Old Testament were Ezekiel, Zechariah, Daniel, those are the books that Revelation seems to refer to most often. And hence, to gain a deeper appreciation of Revelation, we would do well to be thoroughly conversant with those prophetical books of the Old Testament. Books like Ezekiel. Books like Zechariah, books like the other minor prophets, and also books like Daniel. Thus, as we move through our series, on many occasions we will return and revisit some of the Old Testament texts from those books and see how they shed light on the various usages in the book of Revelation. Some examples that again would be worthy of our discussion, perhaps in Revelation 4, As that chapter begins, we have a dramatic vision about God on his throne and over the throne is a rainbow. Immediately to our mind, we should revisit the very thought of Genesis chapter 9 in which after the flood, God placed a rainbow in the sky and that rainbow symbolized then and now the fact of God's preservation of the righteous and his condemnation of the wicked and the fact that he indeed will judge the world again someday. Those thoughts, you see, were not only pertinent for those of the day of, for when the revelation was written, but also are continually pertinent for you and me today. But yet consider another example. In Revelation 7, we will encounter in that chapter a listing of twelve tribes of Israel. Now isn't that interesting? In the Old Testament, we remember the twelve sons of Jacob and how that they became twelve tribes of Israel And that may offhand seem rather direct, but when we look at the listing in Revelation 7, it's not the same listing as it was back in the Old Testament, nor is it the same one in Ezekiel 40 to 48. What will be the significance of the fact that the lists are not the same? The Old Testament will help us understand that fact. Yet a third example. In Revelation chapter 11, we will encounter a discussion in which there are two olive trees, John, what you see right in a book, John saw two olive trees. What's the meaning of that? Zechariah also saw two olive trees in Zechariah chapter 4. What was the meaning then? Maybe that will aid us deeply to understand what John was to interpret when we arrive at later in Revelation chapter 11. It's an interesting thing to behold the power and beauty of those Old Testament references and their significance as they appear in the book of Revelation. But yet, consider a third reason why the book of Revelation meets with more difficulty than perhaps it should. It has to do not only with the nature of the Old Testament references, but also the nature of the background of the book itself. You and I live in a day and time when here in 21st century America, as we've already noted this evening, we are blessed with the remarkable privilege of not facing overt severe persecution. We know that we're persecuted, at least indirectly, in many ways. But who among us has ever been threatened with death if we came to the services of the church? Who among us has ever starved to death or known someone who has simply because they were a Christian? I think I'm safe in saying that at least here in Tennessee, none of us probably know anybody for whom that has happened. But that's exactly the background of the book of Revelation. The persecution was extreme, it was severe, it was a matter of life and death. And thus, you and I would understand the book better if we were better students of history. The old Roman Empire was the setting for the book of Revelation. How did the Caesars treat Christianity? Were they open to it or were they openly hostile to it? It was the latter, wasn't it? Men like Nero, Tertullian, Caligula, Vespasian, and the other Roman emperors, they persecuted Christians to the point that they openly put them to death and made a game of it. And these people had done nothing as far as crimes against the Roman Empire. They simply were brethren. They were Christians, and yet for that fact, they were meeting their death day by day, moment by moment. It was to people like that that John wrote this book. It was to people in that circumstance that Christ sent this final revelation of victory. And in this book, we notice that triumph is hailed as high and great. And they were to remember the fact that though persecuted they were, nonetheless, if they remained faithful until death, Revelation 2 verse 10, they would have the glorious crown spoken of on more than one occasion in this book. And thus, the very issue of Extreme persecution rises time and again in the book of Revelation. I've listed some texts for your consideration. As we begin as far back as Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11, there our discussion was from the lips of Jesus himself. That was in a section known as the Beatitudes, and wasn't it true that Jesus said, "'Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.'" And then he went on to say, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That day and time was one where persecution was open. It was strong. It was severe. No wonder Paul could say in Romans 8.18 about the greatness of that persecution, but also about what was... what was to be sustained. For he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Or what about that famous statement of Paul in Second Timothy 3.12, All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That certainly applied to that day and ours as well. But our persecution is not as strongly severe as was theirs. And that forms an important background and backdrop To a better understanding of the book of Revelation. As an example, consider with me the text of Revelation 2. When you and I come to that, and that one we will arrive at very soon, the seven churches of Asia are listed. What were the peculiar circumstances of those cities, and why might those respective letters have been written to those churches? We shall find that to help us to better understand the messages contained in those letters. Or also in Revelation 13, when there the mark of the beast is discussed, and almost certainly that's one of the most prolific questions anyone is asked about the book of Revelation. What is the mark of the beast? When we arrive at chapter 13 in context, we will use the history of that time to help us better understand the meaning of the mark of the beast. Lastly, in Revelation 17, There when Babylon is mentioned, and the overthrow of Babylon and the complete conquering of her. Well, what is Babylon? The old Babylonian empire had long since been crushed, so who is the Babylon to which John is referring? We will note the history to help us again better understand who or what empire, in fact, Babylon was. As we thus see the background of persecution... It would not be at all inappropriate even now to make mention of one text in Revelation 6. For some, this is one of the key passages in the entire book of Revelation. I would ask that you would read with me verse number 9 of Revelation 6. And listen to the message of persecution as it is there presented. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Why were these people slain? Why were they killed? For the word of God. There was no other reason. And being put to death in that way, notice that in the next verse, these very ones cried out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? That text will be so significant because it will be revisited in chapter 20. Those same souls that are under the altar here will be standing on thrones reigning in chapter 20. And thus they will have come from full circle. From being defeated and cast down, they will be reigning with Christ. Another note of triumph. Another note of victory. But yet another reason. We have noted several already. Consider with me a fourth one as to why the book has met its difficulty in terms of interpretation. It's a very sad thing, but you may have heard comments as I have from those who would make statements to the following fact. Revelation is too complicated and it cannot be understood. Have you ever heard someone either make a direct statement like that or at least make one near to it? That in their mind the book was beyond the scope of human comprehension. It was beyond the capability of man to appreciate and understand it. It's not a shocking thing to say that if we approach the book with that idea, it's almost guaranteed we'll never understand it. If we approach it thinking we can't, convinced that we can't, then almost certainly we never will. But however sad that may well be noted, that those comments have been made, they're simply not true. For after all, the book of Revelation, as we noted earlier, is a part of the Word of God. And God would not give us a book to the creatures He's created that we cannot understand and then hold us responsible for its contents on the day of judgment. That would be unfair to say the least. That would be blasphemous against God Himself. He has given us a book that we can appreciate its message, we can understand and comprehend what it presents, And as we do so, that's not to say it won't require diligence and effort on our part, but it can be understood. Over and again, the Bible testifies to the fact that it's understandable. The prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament was straightforwardly told by the God of heaven, write the vision, make it plain, so that those who read it may run. Habakkuk was not to write a message that was cloudy, ambiguous, unclear, and unable to be understood. It was to be sufficiently plain so that those who heard the message not only could understand but could properly respond by running if that's what was needed. Or consider another text in Ephesians 3 verse 4. When the inspired apostle Paul wrote to the brethren in Ephesus, to them he expressly said, "...when you read the writing, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery." Paul intended that those Ephesians would understand what he wrote, that not only in understanding they could apply the lessons to themselves and thus be found right in the sight of God himself. To allege that the book of Revelation is not understandable is to accuse God of giving us a message that he specifically knew to not be understandable by you and me. What kind of God would that be? What kind of being, deity, would that be to provide you and me a message contained in his holy will and yet know that it's beyond the scope of me and you to understand it? That's not a very good thought about the nature of God if that were true. Obviously, as we've noted, the book of Revelation is understandable. And there are two texts in the book of Revelation itself I would draw your attention to. Notice the impressive power of the understandability of this book. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, note note the words of that text with me. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. There's a trifold blessing pronounced first upon the one that reads it, on those that hear it, but notice also those that keep it. One could not possibly keep it or obey it unless he understood it, unless he was aware of the teachings contained therein. It's clear that Jesus Christ intended the book to be read, to be heard, to be done, to be applied. In the very last chapter, it's as though it's a set of bookends with regard to the book itself. In the very last chapter, notice verse 7 with me, Revelation 22, verse number 7. Behold, I come quickly... Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Another blessing is pronounced, and note with me again, it's on those that keep the sayings. And that word keep means to apply, to obey, to do. Again, they couldn't possibly have done that if they had not understood it, if they hadn't comprehended it, if they hadn't applied in their mind the thought of the lesson that was being applied to them or shared with them. Let us never think the book of Revelation cannot be understood. Let us never think it's beyond our power to appreciate it and to apply lessons that are meaningful to you and me still today. But in the fifth place, one last point that we might well note about some reasons as to why the book may have met its problems in terms of application is the fact of effective Bible study tools. Let me explain that a bit more if I might. You and I, as we study the Bible, have long been told and long learned that it's always significant and important to study a text in its context. We can't divorce the text from its context, for if we do, we can use the text to teach whatever we want, though that's not what the will of God was in the text originally. When we come to Revelation, the same principles that we have used so effectively in the 65 books before it we should continue to use in this book. As an example, you and I in the study of, say, the book of Joshua in the Old Testament thoroughly familiarize ourselves with the children of Israel, where they were geographically at the time that that particular book began, what unfolded in terms of the victories and the ultimate division and conquest of the land. We place it in its context and draw the lessons about what the book means. Or in the New Testament, isn't that also true, for instance, with regard to the book of First Corinthians? In 16 chapters, as we approach that book, we first learn about the city of Corinth. We familiarize ourselves with the problems that that city faced in the first century. And by knowing those problems, it illuminates the message that Paul sent to them in the book of First Corinthians. No less is true of the book of Revelation, When we come to this book, this book was written to some people who dwelt somewhere and they had certain problems, certain issues with which they were dealing. We've already learned that a severe one was persecution. That'll be a clear background issue that we must not forget as we understand the book. But may I submit to you that the first chapter gives us a deeper hint about a way to help us understand the book of Revelation. Would you note with me verse number 11? Revelation 1, verse number 11. This was none other than the Savior himself speaking to John, and these were the words that he shared, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia and unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Two remarks, if we might, about that verse. First, John, what you see, write in a book. It's as though John was sitting in an ancient amphitheater, what you and I might call a movie theater, and God pulls the curtain, and on the stage before John is a set of visions, panoramic visions, and John is supposed to write down what he sees. Thus, one of the first lessons in this thing that we might appreciate, when you and I read this book, we are reading what John wrote down, which is what he saw taking place on that stage. And thus, when we see him write about in chapter 13, beasts rising out of the sea, you can imagine in a play, for example, that they might have a stage concocted where a portion of the floor is in fact a door, and a beast would rise out of that, and it would connote a meaning to John. It would have a principle of truth contained behind it. John, what you see, write in a book. And thus, one of the first things we might do is visualize the book of Revelation as much as we can. These are signs and symbols. If we will pause and use our imagination and visualize some of what John is seeing and what he's writing, we might better be able to appreciate the truth and principle that's behind that message. But notice also that contained in this same verse is a reference to seven churches of Asia. Here is the audience to which this book was first sent, The Seven Churches of Asia. And so our next lesson, beginning, in fact, next week and perhaps the week following, will center around better understanding these seven churches. What was it that was unique and significant about them and about the character of the particular letters that were sent to them? But it would not at all hurt us at this point to at least generically note something about them. The seven churches of Asia. In the ancient world, the first century world, you might know with me that we can notice some of the features and facts about that. Now, I'll attempt to use my pointer to point out where some of those are as we particularly list and name them. But this region all in here is Asia Minor. Several of the New Testament books were directed to congregations in those areas. For instance, the middle section here, as you note, is Galatia. The various churches of Galatia were addressed in the book of Galatians. There's references to Cappadocia and some of these other cities in various letters contained in the New Testament. One of the first things we might notice is that these seven churches were not the only churches in Asia Minor. For instance, the book of Colossians informs us that there was a church in Laodicea, which city is located right there. Okay, That little black dot is the church at Laodicea. So, as we appreciate that thought in the church at Colossae and the church in various other cities, these seven were specifically selected by the Holy Spirit. This message sent to them because their message is specifically relevant for all ages and for all time. But to notice where these churches were. Ephesus is located here. It was a seacoast town, and that will have something to say for us as we study the letter to Ephesus. As you look at them, The next church that was mentioned in order was Smyrna. It was situated a bit northward. Here is Smyrna, and that black dot there is in fact where where the church in, in Smyrna was. Somewhat northward from there, you notice that we arrive at the third one, which is Pergamos, and then Thyatira, and then Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. If you notice the shape of that, it looks a bit like a distorted horseshoe as you slide from Ephesus up over the top there at Pergamus back down to the one at Laodicea like a bent over or distorted horseshoe. And notice that we will look at them a bit in order as we proceed to study them. But there's perhaps another figure that I can blow that up and make them look a little bit easier to see. I understand the writing there is a bit small. Here's an expansion. And maybe you can see a bit better the general layout of how these congregations existed with respect to one another. Again, there's Ephesus on the coast, then Smyrna and Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. One by one, as we look at them, they were a bit unique. The problems of one were not the main problems, perhaps, of another. There were some generalities and some things in common, but there were some things that were also unique. And thus, the second idea on this fifth point is we should not only take John's place and try to achieve his perspective, but also achieve the perspective of these congregations, those in them who first heard these messages, and try to better understand what it is that was being said to them. With that point being made, we have come to the conclusion of our lesson this evening on this introduction to the book of Revelation. In it, we have noted a number of things. Maybe it'd be fair to say it is the grand finale of the Bible. The curtain will close on the inspired written revelation of the God of heaven. There will be no more. The book of Revelation was written now some 20 centuries ago, and never again will the inspired pen provide us with another written revelation. This is it. As such, we should appreciate this book together with the 26 before it is the New Testament and appreciate that it's God's final written message to the human family. These are the last days, and this book is included in that inspired message given to us. Secondly, we've learned several things about the book that will help us in our study of it, our interpretation of it. And in the way of studying that, we have learned some of the points that have caused difficulty. First, it's apocalyptic literature. Second, it often refers to the prophetical books of the Old Testament. Thirdly, we would do well to know the background of the ancient Roman Empire to better understand it. In the fourth place, there are those that believe it cannot be understood, but that's an incorrect understanding or an incorrect perspective. And finally, to understand it best, we need to use proper Bible study techniques, including the right perspective of both John and those congregations, seven in number, that first received the book. With that being said, we are well set on our journey now to move through the book of Revelation. And we'll continue that next Lord's Day evening. But may we suggest, even at this point, that a beautiful passage in the heart of the book is Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. It's a self-evident statement that one cannot die in the Lord unless he lives in the Lord. Are you living in the Lord tonight? Are you a member of His body, the blood-bought body of Christ itself? We are told in Acts 20, verse 28, that His blood purchased that body, and it is in that body that we are saved, Ephesians 5, 23. If you're not a member of that body, the Lord gave the following as the entrance requirements. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess orally that He is the Son of God and you must be baptized, that is to say, buried in water for the forgiveness or remission of sins. If you've done that, the Lord added you to the church, Acts 2.47. If tonight you need to do that, the baptismal waters are warm and ready, all things are prepared. If you have become a member of the Lord's body at some previous point in life, but you have not been faithful, you perhaps in this study will be encouraged to again maintain faithfulness But you need to return to that state before we begin, if you're to have the greatest of appreciation for the message of the book. If we could assist you tonight by way of prayer, for the Lord to forgive you of those sins, and for you to again be in a position of faithfulness in His sight, we'd be happy to pray on your behalf. If either of those things is a need of your life, will you not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?